Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Harsh Truths Podcast. Sorry about missing January. If you can't tell by my voice, I have been and continue to be sick. I'm going to be making it up to everyone in February by having this episode today and then and hopefully another two weeks, an episode, and then we'll be back on track for March. If you want to support the podcast, please check out patreon.com slash harshtruthspodcast. Follow us on Twitter at harshtruthspod and send us an email, harshtruthspodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate any and all feedback on the episodes. Last month's guest, David Reed, was actually just on Noise Extra this past week, so check them out and support them as well. Uh, Like I said, I'm feeling pretty sick, so I'm going to keep this really short. I'm not going to have a wrap-up at the end. Our guest this month is Luke Tandy from Being and Skeleton Dust Records. At the end of Summer Scum last year, I was able to travel back up to Dayton and visit with Luke, and what transpired is the interview that follows. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Skeleton Dust Records, and if you don't mind, just introducing yourself really quick. Name, where you're from. My name is Luke Tandy. I run Skeleton Dust Records, a store that we're in right now, as well as Skeleton Dust Recordings, which is the label that started off everything. I'm in a slew of noise projects, including Heat Signature, which is a tour that is finishing tonight here at the store. Primary project would be Being? Yeah, I would say that's the Being is the primary project. That it's at least the longest running project since I started that in 2006. Um, and then uh, I don't know if you want me to go <laughs> like through the whole history of stuff, uh, what I've done. but um, We're going to kind of start at the very beginning and then okay. go forward. But you know, if you don't mind, like how old, how old are you? You're, you're deceptively very young looking, but like, oh, I'm thanks. not going like, to insult you and make a guess. You know? <laughs> I'm 35. So when I started, uh, it was 2006, so whatever that makes, it was 13 years ago, yeah. 22-ish, yeah, yeah. something like that. Was that your first foray into making noise was, was mm-hmm. being... Yeah, I was in college, and I'm trying to remember exactly where it started. It was, it was one of the class, the classic routes into noise. I feel which are there, you know, there's just like a handful. Basically, it's like yeah. the relapse route. Yep. The what I call like Sonic Youth route. Yep. Or like the electronic music route. Yeah. It seems like those are the three gateways into noise. Of course, it's not always true, but you hear that a lot from people. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. I was DJing at the time just for fun and I would DJ like techno and house and kind of all kinds of stuff. I was figuring out what, what I wanted to DJ and I just really liked electronic music a lot. And so I was just exploring it. So that was kind of like my first musical thing. I, yeah, I tried to do the high school band thing very casually. Um, then that was at the very end of high school and that didn't really go very far at all. And then do you mean high school band? Like, like, like well, actually band both. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Well, so I, I did, did, I did trombone in middle school. That's, oh, did you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was percussion. So that's why I started off doing that in middle school. And then they had a weird policy when you went to high school, when you got into high school, you had to be in the marching band if you wanted to continue concert band. And I was, and I did it one year 
And I did it one year and I was like, no, fuck this. I'm never, <laughs> I'm out of band. <laughs> so yeah, some friend, a friend and I kind of did like a two piece sort of thing in high school a little bit that we never really played any shows or anything. It, it was a literally a garage band. Sure. Um, barely did any recordings and we didn't know what kind of sound we were looking for. We were just kind of copying stuff we liked at the time. But yeah, then I started DJing like at the very end of high school and going into college and started getting into electronic music more and also just getting like, I never had high speed internet in high school at all. We were just on a dial up. And so going to college, I got high speed internet and that kind of really opened the door as far as streaming music and downloading music and just discovering new things. And, you know, the whole college experience of being around more interesting people that you were around when growing up anyway. Yeah. Did you grow up in Dayton? No, uh, I grew up in Fairland in Indiana. Um, I went to school or went to college at Ball State, Indiana, which is in Muncie. So where I grew up is a very rural town. I uh, had a graduating class of 99 people. Whoa. It was a, you know, a house in the middle of a cornfield, pretty much. When you were growing up, was there like lots of music around? Was it a musical household? or Not really. My uh, my parents, they like music, but not they're not super passionate about it. But... I mean, we'd be playing music around the house for sure and like listen to it on the radio in the car a lot and so on. And then they would allow us to buy our own music too. Like I remember buying CDs from a pretty young age. Uh, we had an, uh, an aunt that worked at like a BMG warehouse okay, and was able to get CD for, CDs for us at the time for $1 each, which was pretty big because they were really expensive at the time. Yeah. So we were, you know, consuming music in our own way, but it was, you know, popular music and... Um, I didn't really get exposed to like underground music until probably later in high school. A friend of mine, the guy that I had the band with in high school, he was the kind of the one that got me into it and he was into like Christian hardcore stuff. So we'd go see Zayo and, um, trying to think of some other bands, uh, that we saw. Zayo's an oddly recurring. <laughs> with a noise. <laughs> like, I feel like more than one person has been like. Oh yeah, I like Zayo. They're fucking awesome, man. Oh yeah, yeah, they rule. Dude, Liberate Furnace is yeah. Top I still tier. listen to that. I think it's yeah. great. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we go see them and other bands at this venue called the Emerson, which was an all ages venue in downtown near downtown Indianapolis, and they would have a lot of that Christian hardcore, but a lot of like secular stuff too, and just like death metal or whatever. Do you remember a point where maybe you felt drawn towards less conventional music? You know, I, I for me it was like. I was just angry and I just got lucky and heard some angry music mm -hmm. that was kind of underground right as I was being exposed to music. Mm -hmm. And then that just kind of, and I was lucky enough to be in Cleveland where there was a scene for it. And my life has just been swirling downwards into the underground abyss since then. Uh -huh. I don't have like a specific moment where I was like, Oh, I heard this album and it was, my jaw dropped and I knew that this was going to change me fundamentally, uh -huh. at least as far as like the, the sounds and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I think probably towards the end of high school or uh, maybe in the middle a little bit was when I started kind of craving more like this wilder stuff than I was listening to at the time or kind of different stuff. Like the world of electronic music really did kind of open that up a lot because it seems like the world of like house and techno and dance music at the time seemed so distant and far away from where I was like from Fairland, Indiana. Like that was the stuff that was from like New York City and yeah. like Detroit and yeah. London and Berlin and like those worlds just seemed so far away. Yeah. And so I think it made me more interested in that kind of thing like 
music that wasn't accessible to me at the time. It's funny you say that because when I was talking to Matt Purse, we, we touched on the idea of mythos building mm-hmm. where it's a lot harder nowadays to do that because it's like, we all just were at summer scum and if no one had been able to like record video or stream it or anything, we would just be passing these stories down about how legendary the paranoid time set was or how Mm -hmm. awesome so-and-so was. Yeah. And someone else is going to hear that story and, and crave it because it's got this added mythology to it. Mm -hmm. And, that seems similar to what you're saying now where, you know, you had this, this music that was coming to you that seemed from like a, a far off place or like mm-hmm. a, just a, it, it carried its own like mythology yeah. in, into it. And, and that does make you want it more because it's almost like you can't quite, you can't be there. So you just want to feel as much of it as you can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about that in the car on tour and just like first getting into noise and this, that magic and the mystery of it. Uh, somebody brought, well, we were picking out CDs before we left and somebody else was doing it. I was busy doing something else. So they got a stack of CDs from my collection and they took Burned Mind by Wolf Eyes and brought that. And I, which is a record to, I haven't listened to in probably years now, but always really loved a lot. And that was like when I was first starting to get into noise, I was of course one of the first ones yeah, that yeah, I was exposed so. to. And we pulled out the insert, like the booklet, and we're looking through that. And um, I didn't even remember this, but it's like one, like the whole uh, one side is just old flyers of Wolf Eye shows and stuff. And I do remember looking at that thing at the time and just being like, "Oh my god, this like these all these shows happening with all these bands at all these places that I don't know about at all." Yeah. And like it's like I can only even imagine how crazy it is and what it must be like and. Yeah, there's a lot of mysteries, so it just made it really enticing at the time. You were in your like early 20s when you kind of discovered more like the, the noise music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You kind of had your access point through DJing and, and electronic music. Mm-hmm. Was there anything specifically about harsher noise that drew you in? or You know, I, it wasn't uh, like an immediate thing at all. Like, uh, I... Did not like it when I first heard it. I uh, was pretty turned off by it. I started off with like lesser weird stuff, I feel like. Like uh, Black Dice might have been like this first weird group that I started getting into. Yeah. And they, they kind of like uh, had both feet in like the dance, electronic world, and noise, I would totally. say. Yeah. Especially in their later period. But then I picked up Burn Mind and I listened to it and I was just like, oh my God, this is like this is really abrasive music. I don't know like if I'm into this or not. And the same thing with Mersbau, like I you know, first started listening to Mersbau and it was just like thinking like, what does this guy think he can get away with? Like, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was like offended by it. Sure. Yeah. That somebody would do this. And then I don't know, I don't know exactly on the timeline where that shift started to happen. But then I was just like, you know, it, was, it became an obsession, basically. Yeah. Um, and I never really got into, like, super heavy music before that. Like, I was never really... I'm just now getting into, like, death metal. Okay. And... Um, but I just... So I never really liked super heavy music. Like, um, my friend that I mentioned before, one of the records that he played for me, too, in high school was uh, Converge's Jane Doe. And at the time, I was just like, oh, my God, this is, like, too much. Like, it's really? too funny. extreme. Yeah. So I never really listened to like that heavy of music. And then 
So there's a, a strange gap between a bunch of stuff and then harsh noise sure. uh, that I'm not, just now catching up on and appreciating. So, yeah. how long did it take you bef- from getting really into noise to to actually like to making noise? Oh, uh, I mean, it was. I feel like it's pretty much instantaneously. Kind of yeah. yeah, I mean, I couldn't resist. You know, it's, it was just. It was. Yeah, I feel like it's part of what drew me to noise was it felt like I could do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I sang in a couple bands, but I have no real musical. I, like I said, I played trombone in middle school, but mm-hmm. I, I can't play music. Yeah. And the idea of being able to make music or make something that could express myself artistically that didn't require me to sit down and, and learn really how to properly do something was really attractive to me. And so, yeah, it was like, it was like, I could do this right away. And it was, you know, pretty much that, you know, yeah. I think I maybe, you know, I, I think I maybe listened to a gray wolves and like thing that I downloaded off of soul seek for a few times before I was like, I think I could do this. Yeah. You know, like I just need to like, I, I remember asking a friend of mine who, who is a musician. I was like, how do you think they did this? And he was like, well, this is how, I think they did this. And it was like from there, it just like spitballed. And then mm-hmm. around the same time, I, I guess the timing was, was pretty fortunate that like YouTube became a bigger thing. And so then I could see people playing live. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, around the same time I moved back to Cleveland and then I, I right as I moved back to Cleveland, I started going to a couple of the noise shows there and saw like Wyatt play and, and to stop myself from rambling and to tie it back in. It's funny that uh, when I was, getting to know Wyatt and like, he was kind of bringing me in, you know, I was like, well, who, who should I check out? Like, what should I check out? Like, I like harsh noise and I like mm-hmm. power electronics. And he's like, if you like harsh noise, listen to this dude from Dayton being, <laughs> he's like, the tape's called battery cages, like come over and I'll play it for you. <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. So cool. it's, it's funny because it was so early on and, and it seems like it was, you know, like, I, I had the mythology of it being passed to me without mm-hmm. being, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't met you yet. I hadn't interacted with you. So like, to me, it was like, this guy's this harsh legend, <laughs> but it sounds like it was around the same time you were really just getting started. Oh yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure if that tape is really that great, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you enjoyed it at the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was pretty much instantaneously like same, same deal. Like, you know, I played drums and had a drum kit and all that, but I'm, this always kind of sucked, really. It was never really got that good. Didn't really have the discipline to practice and get better. And I'm not super into the idea of like playing a song over and over and over again and practicing it and perfecting it, at least not this point in time, maybe sure. later. So yeah, that was really attractive, like being able to create and express yourself without, you know, being a virtuoso in an instrument already. And the label kind of started around the same time as yeah, well? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I'm trying to, like, think back, and I think, I want to say the first show I went to was in 2005 or 2006. It was this uh, show called Brutal Brutal Cincinnati Damage, and it was, uh, like, a series of shows that Robert and Human of Real Side from Cincinnati would throw. And it was actually at the Mockbee of all oh, places. Wow. So, like, okay. yeah, which was uh, where uh, Summer Scum Festival was just uh, this past weekend. Yeah, it was like the first noise show I ever went to. And he played a solo set, I remember. Iove, who was another Cincinnati legend, did like kind of an installation where he had oscillators set up in like the 
a downstairs part of the venue. And then um, one of the last sets I remember seeing that night was Jason Zay. And he did, uh, for those that have seen him before, know that it's pretty impressive to watch. And um, it's kind of fascinating to watch what he does with just mag- magnetic tape and cassette tape. And uh, yeah. and just seeing him really, that's when it really clicked for me, I guess. And sure. just was pretty mind blown by it, uh, what I just saw. And I remember writing him after the show and asking him how to make noise, you know, that classic like yeah, noob yeah. question like yeah, how do totally. you do this because yeah. I remember explaining to him at the time I was like I played tennis in high school is it like can you just learn it is it something that you learn Yeah. and then you know he very politely said no it's not <laughs> Jason Zay is, is so much fun to watch he's one of those people though I'm watching I feel like I have to hold my breath the whole time Yeah. otherwise yeah. I'm going to like breathe too loud or miss uh-huh. something you know Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. First off, there's never, if you're new in noise, there's no shame in asking how to do something. <laughs> yeah, but sure. I think even if you're a vet and you see Jason Zay and like that crazy setup, there's uh-huh. no shame in yeah, asking. Yeah, how like, do you do what that? The fuck? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he kind of got me experimenting with tape and stuff like that, you know, immediately afterwards. I wasn't doing like nearly what he was doing, but like I, I picked up the idea that I could, you know, take a tape player and record tapes and then play them back and like, manipulate them and do and that's he i feel like he really opened the door for experimentation which is a really exciting thing to explore to truly experiment and explore sound yeah which i don't really do too much anymore you know it's kind of like all methodical and formulaic to a certain degree but there's still some but just not like it was in the beginning where i was just going nuts with it and sure doing different stuff every day and you were just trying to find your your footing. Yeah, I think so. What I wanted to do and how I wanted to make sound and yeah. yeah. I don't know if this is true for all of them because I don't have all of them as much as I try, but it, you do most of the art for the label releases. Uh, yeah, pretty much almost everything. There have been a handful of things that I have not done, okay. but uh, especially recently I've tried to stick with doing all the art myself. Yeah. Had you done any any sort of like visual art before before starting to make a like album? No, or? no, that was the first no. time. I just started making collages, and then uh, that yeah, it's kind of morphed into what I, the image of the label now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like there's like a, I can pull a release out even like when I that I Strain Zine came out. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know who I know who did these oh, cool. before even like you yeah. know, looking at it or looking to see the credits, and you've done a few installation like gallery installations or like showings yeah i did that show at mata in la when they were still open um i did one here in town and uh i think those are the only two that i've done but uh yeah i've uh, submitted art for um other people's releases here and there and uh i did i do some beer labels for a guy too that does like homebrew so yeah um so, yeah, that's pretty exciting to do um, yeah. and kind of develop that as well yeah. and along with the label. It's going to be a funny subject since I have no, no understanding or experience or, or any way to really truly relate. But I know that, I know that you like are a, a kind of a connoisseur of beer. Uh-huh. Um, and because you're a, a noise person and generally with us, like if we really like something, we get super like we want to like pick it apart and play with it. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever have that urge to like, to homebrew or uh, have you done that? Yeah, or? we've done that before. Um, and really enjoyed it when we did it and it was, it just became a little too con- time consuming. So we stopped sure. doing it. And, um, 
I am not as passionate about beer as I used to be. I used to work at a like a, a deli and a beer carryout, and I was a beer buyer. And oh, so okay. at that time, that's when I was like really, really into it. And I wanted a, a career in that too. And then after going to all these beer tastings and beer festivals and hating everybody there, <laughs> I decided that it was not the the world for me really. So I kind of, I ended up getting a different job and I still love beer and drink a lot of it. Um, yeah. but, uh, not as crazy about it as I used to be, but I do enjoy a fine beer right. or a crappy beer too. So sure, I kind of yeah. like them all. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I feel like that's most, most people's approach. Like I knew that when like you and Shane had been on tour at one point, yeah, you guys went out of your way to like go to someplace. And, uh-huh, yeah, and we, so it made me think, I wonder, cause with me, if I get really into something, I start, digging and uh-huh. I, I just have to exhaust myself with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that people like to homebrew and like that's mm-hmm. a, that can be a process. Yeah. yeah. So I just kind of don't want to say assume, but I was like, I bet, I bet Luke's probably. Yeah. Yeah. We did do that for that. We did it for a little bit and we oh. actually had some good results over time. We did several batches and then kind of changed the way that the, we were brewing at one point. Um, and we're happy with it, but yeah, it would just take a whole, like literally a whole day to brew a batch of beer. And Dude. after a while we just got lazy and we're like, ah, let's just go buy a six pack. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you've hosted shows at your house prior to the current house you live at and at the house you live at mm-hmm. currently. Did that come before performing and doing the label or was that kind of further down the line or um it was really about the same time as well i guess uh, a little bit after so to go back when i first got into noise i was still in college and living in indiana right and um i pretty much immediately started booking shows like right after i got into noise there was a i would book a record store called village green okay. in muncie and then um there was another venue that it was some bar that I can't even remember the name of it, but we had a show there. And then uh, this guy, Bobby Vomit, who was from Muncie, he was a tattoo artist that lived in the area, and he was another noise guy. So he was kind of like my one noise connection in the area. And we would have shows at his insane house that had like a mini ramp inside of it <laughs> and like a baby coffin when you walked in the front door. Wow. It was just a wild, <laughs> weird place to be. But anyway, we would book house shows there as well. Uh, but then when I moved to Dayton in, I guess, 2000, 2007, I think, is when I moved to Dayton, that's when we started doing house shows here in town. Um, right. I lived at a house called uh, Acid Fever House with some roommates, and that's when we started booking house shows there. And then continued at um, uh, Battery Cage, my house before this one I'm living in right now, yeah. and then Skeleton Dust HQ, where I live now, and now this all of the shows are happening here at the shop since I opened it. Was there a particular reason you chose to move to Dayton? No, it was pretty random. Um, I graduated from college and I didn't really know what to do. I graduated with a degree in audio production and kind of had aspirations of going out to the West Coast to find a job and just decided I didn't want to do it and it wasn't for me. And I didn't want to go to like Chicago or New York either. And uh, a friend of mine just from Dayton that I knew through noise told me they were looking for a roommate. I just jumped on it and just came here. So it was pretty, uh, pretty random how I ended up here, but I'm glad I did. And your brother makes noise too. Mm-hmm. It was, I'm assuming it wasn't simultaneous. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit after I started, I, I believe. I can't remember exactly when he started doing noise. It might have been something that we did together first, and then he started doing his solo thing. Um, there's an orgasmic response unit. is a pro- project I'm referring to, yeah. which um, 
we started off doing it probably in 2007 as well. And at the time, it was just like guitar noise, basically. Um, I think I saw one of your early shows in Cleveland, and it was guitar. Okay. I think. What? Um, it would have been at Wyatt's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that place called again? Or what was that, that place, place called? was had several names, but the final name they settled on was the Cool Ranch. Oh, okay. I can't remember. <laughs> it was uh, also called the Seventy First Door. Seventy First Door. Black Eye. Yeah, yeah. At that at that show, we were playing junk metal, uh, so that we were okay. in the junk metal phase by that point. Maybe we had a, a guitar. Um, I don't recall, but in the very early days, it was just pure was guitar noise. Guitar noise. Um, and then I think shortly after that, Nate started doing diaphragmatic from what I can remember. It wasn't too long. And then we started doing his own thing. So Was he still living in Indiana and then moved here? Or? Um, yeah, at the time, I think so. He was still in Indiana. He was going to college and he lived in a house with some people in Indianapolis. And they actually did some uh, house shows there as well. So, yeah, he kind of independently was doing his own noise thing and but would also come to Dayton and hang out for sh- and go to shows and play shows as well. There's not too many siblings in noise, but the, there's a couple pairs in mm-hmm. Ohio. There's Wyatt and Amanda and then there's mm-hmm. you guys. I know Wyatt and Amanda get along pretty well cuz I I interact with them on a regular basis and mm-hmm. you know they they uh they collaborate. They do a couple different projects. Uh, Dead Peasant Insurance would be the most notable one, but I guess the question I want to ask is, is has noise improved or strengthened your relationship with your brother or has it made it, uh, I mean, like I'm assuming if you're like everybody else with their brother, including me with my brother, it's like, depends on the day. Like, you you know, like some days I'm like, I love my brother. And other days I'm like, I wish I didn't have a brother, but you know, like having that common interest that that's, you know, central enough in your lives that or maybe not central central, but you know, it's important enough in your lives that you're doing it regularly. It's not Mm -hmm. like a, you know, it's not like this one off thing and then like never, never to hear from again. Yeah. Uh, Nate and I have always been really good buddies from, uh, from the beginning really. So what's the age difference there? If you don't mind me asking. So he's 32, I believe he's three years younger than me. yeah. Yeah. He's 32, I think. And, um, so yeah, ever since we were young, we really just would get along and hang out and we had similar interests. Um, so yeah, we were always buddies when we were younger, and we have two other siblings as well—an older brother and a sister. Okay. And um, and then over time, like uh, you know, as you grow up together, you start to discover that you know your differences. And Nate and I just paired off basically. I would yeah. get along really well with my other siblings, but we just don't have the relationship that Nate and I have really, where we're like friends. You sure. Know? So yeah, I mean, as far as. Um, it's probably as it's allowed us to bond over something else, you know, um, something unique that not many people can bond over. And so it's especially cool that we're, we're brothers and we get to do that together Yeah, Yeah. and, um, you know, share a lot of cool experiences like traveling all over to play shows and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that was something I wanted to to touch on too, because you've, you've traveled pretty extensively international performing, you know, and Sweden, right? Yeah, I've been there and uh, Denmark and Japan. Yeah, and South Korea as well. Oh, I didn't know about South. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I just played one show there one time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How have your experiences been like playing out of the country? Like, is that easy for you? More difficult? I can't imagine. I, 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 it's something that's going to be happening for me in the next like year. Uh huh. And I'm like so stressed about 
how, what am I going to do? What am I going to bring my, no, you know, like yeah. what am I even going to bring? Are you going to Japan? I'm going to Japan in April instead of January now. Uh-huh. Um, just because I want a, a more authentic Japanese yeah. wrestling experience. And last year, like in January of this year, like something like six to 10,000 us fans showed up for the event. Oh wow. And so it's like, I don't, I don't want to be there like in a sea of other like Americans. Yeah. I want to be there in a sea of Japanese people. Right, like, right. And the, and the weather will be nicer. It'll and, be really nice. Yeah. yeah. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to go to Ned's and I'm just going to like, I'm just going to like have to like somehow, I think I'm just gonna have to ask my partner to just hold my money and just not <laughs> give me so much. Otherwise I'm going to like try to sell a kidney or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a overall a great experience, challenging at times for sure. Um, the first time I went to Europe, um, I remember, like, I, uh, Mikul Ror- uh, Rorbo, who does uh, Ali Pisser, did do Ali Pisser, and now it's kind of like a, a naked stemmer. I'm not probably totally butchering the pronunciation no of that. Either, yeah. But that guy, yeah. he was a guy that helped me out. And um, yeah, got me a show. And. Um, Denmark and uh, we played Gothenburg, Sweden as well. And yeah, like it's the first time I ever went to Europe. So there was that element and, uh, just nervous already being in a place I hadn't been before and flying overseas to play for a show for people that I had never met before that lived thousands of miles away. Um, so yeah, it was just, uh, I was pretty anxious at the time, but then it just became really pretty chill. And um, there was a couple, couple of sketchy moments. Like uh, it was the the night after the show in, um, uh, I'm sorry, Copenhagen. I so everybody rides bikes there. Nobody has cars yeah. really, and um, so Mikkel was on his bike. That's how he got to the show, and he was riding his bike home, and I was taking a bus home. And I didn't have internet at the time or anything. I just had like an iPod, no iPhone or Wi-Fi hotspot or anything like that. So like I had to get on the bus and just get off the bus at a certain point. And of course I got off the wrong stop. Like uh-huh. I just couldn't remember like where I was supposed to get off. And so I was just walking around uh, Copenhagen for like three in the morning um, for like an hour by myself trying to figure out where to go. And of course it's three o'clock in the morning, so there's nobody around and, uh, like I hadn't slept for, you know, over 24 hours and, but eventually I I ran into somebody and they spoke English and it worked out okay. But you know, there are situations like that where stressful times, like running to to catch a train somewhere, get on a a plane and go somewhere, never sleeping and being really hungover and all that stuff, but nothing, uh, you know, super challenging aside from logistical things like that. So I always think about that picture. Oh, I'm going to forget who it is now. It's, it's, it's memed around of the, the TSA agent with the, the modular unit. (laughs) Yeah. And like, he's just kind of looks like he's like, I don't know what to do. And like (laughs) the, the guy who's clearly the guy who owns the modular stuff is like so stressed. Like he's going to like pull out a patch cable or something yeah. and fuck everything. Right. But yeah, I, I was like, I, like I, I see that in my head. Like I see them like looking at my pedals and being like, you're going to do what without a guitar? Like, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, like what am I, how, how do I explain a contact mic? Like, uh-huh. you know? um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like I would always, brag about like uh tsa and other security agents from different countries never going through my stuff like 
I, you know, pack my bag and always do it as a carry on Yeah, and run it through. And like most of the time, nobody would say anything to me. And I'd just be like, I can't believe they're not saying anything to me. Like there's a bunch of like wire, like yeah. bunched up wire in there. There's a thing, <laughs> a metal box with wire sticking out of it and other metal pieces. And, and they would never say anything to me. And, and then, um, when we were coming home from this most recent trip to Vietnam and Japan, we went through Canada, which is like has some of the, the most intense security checkpoints in an airport I've ever seen before. And the lady pulled it out, and she <laughs> she just let, it was one of the crank surgeon contact mics, and it was like the metal box with a contact mic that's hanging off of it, and like. <laughs> springs on it and everything and she pulled it out and she did look at it and she said what is this <laughs> and was just like upset that i had something that looked like that in my bag and i was like it's a microphone like right. i'm not even gonna try to explain what it's used for or what noise music is or you know and right. all that and i was like just do the bomb swab test yeah. you'll see uh, that it's just a microphone <laughs> yeah i i think the one time the one time i got a guy who was like stressing just about it i had like a that large black Yamaha four track I have. Yeah. Like a bunch of, and he's like, what is all this? And he's like, and I was like, I was just stressing. And I like panic. And I, I, I was like, I got to get a good line. I was like, honestly, man, I'm a guitar player and someone stole my guitar and this is all I got left. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> he's like, Oh man, you're going home. And I'm like, cause I, I was coming back from New York. I was, I was yeah. like, yeah, man, I'm just going back home to Cleveland. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gave up. He like swabbed it and like, he's like, you're good. You're good. Yeah. I heard the trick is just to say you do techno and that's like, okay, that's something relatable for most people. Yeah. They've heard that word. Yeah. Yeah. So they have some kind of uh, concept of what that means. So yeah. and it's and, just weird enough to where they're not going to bother. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you started and started making noise around 2006, 2007 label kind of came around the same time. Mm -hmm. Show space kind of came around a little, little later. You opened the store in 2017. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 2017. So, and you said you went to school for for audio production. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, you had you had thought about getting the music industry kind of pivoted from that mm -hmm. away from that. How long ago did you decide that you wanted to own a record store? Um, I, it was something I had been thinking about for a very long time. Uh, even when I was in college, I had a hard time deciding like what I wanted to do, which is natural. Like I don't, it's hard to imagine people being in college for four years and figuring out what they want to do with the rest of their life. Um, yeah. and so I think I was struggling with that at the time. Um, when I first started, actually I was uh, interested in fashion design. So that was the first thing I started pursuing Oh wow! and then got out of that. Cause I just, thought it was kind of a vapid world that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Um, but and then got into audio production because I was interested in music and stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll want to do something with that and that'll be fun. Um, so, I mean, I never, the thing was, though, I never really got a job with my degree uh, after I graduated. And so I just kind of jumped around from job to job after I moved to Dayton. Um, but nothing was truly fulfilling for me. And, um, I had like kind of my first real adult job was the, uh, before I opened the store and it was a, like a marketing startup. And I figured that would be like a good, I don't know. It was, it just seemed like the good next step. I was like, I need a, a job that pays well. And that's like legit that I'm, you know, kind of like a salary job or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I had like, I was learning good skills. Like I was the office manager. And so I was kind of, 
doing all these administrative things I hadn't done before and like uh, human resources related things that um, I thought would just be good uh, things to learn. Um, and so I did that for a while and really started to hate it after a while and had a pretty rough uh, experience with one of the superiors there. And, and that was kind of like the springboard, springboard for deciding to open the store was that job because it kind of prepared me with all these things that I needed to know that I didn't know about, like running a business and running a small business. And, and then I was just, I was so miserable that I was like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I have to do what makes me happy. And if that means like not making any money for a while then or forever, then whatever, I just need to be happy because I really hated that job. And so that's like what I did. I decided to do it really was after a while I was there and um, I knew I was going to quit eventually and then start preparing on opening the store. And to go back to, I, I had been thinking about this since probably college. I was like really into the, the fantasy of opening a store because, you know, go to independent record stores when I was younger and just be, you know, really, really into being there. Yeah. Um, so, but I never thought it was like really attainable at all. It just didn't seem like it was possible until, until I hated my last job so much that I was like, <laughs> anything is possible except this. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too. Cause I feel like when you get older, some of the mystique of like a business gets like stripped away and mm-hmm. it's like, you know what? I, maybe I can. Yeah. Cause yeah. I remember I was the same way. Like I, I hung out at Chris's Warp Records in Cleveland or it was technically Lakewood, Ohio. And you know, it was like a dream, you mm-hmm. know? And then, uh, I ended up, I did end up working at a record store in Cleveland for a little bit with, with Andrew Kirshner and, uh-huh. and a couple other of our friends. What and store was it? It was called Phonographic Arts. Oh, is it still open? No, it lasted about, I think, a year and a half. Okay. It was essentially our, a friend of mine, uh, Cliff, who more or less sold his record, sta- record collection mm. out of a shop. And mm. then, like, we just managed to, like, get a little noise section going and, like, uh, you know, it was, it was the size of like this area that we're in right here, not uh-huh. the rest of your, you know, the rest of the shop. And, but it was cool, but like, it was like the little bit more of the mystique. I was like, wait, if he can do this, <laughs> yeah. anybody can kind of do like, not anybody, but like, I, I think, I think I could do that if I wanted to yeah. or something. It's not, it's not like where my passion lies, but, mm-hmm. but I did have a similar experience, uh, when I was in high school and, and when I was in college, I was like, I don't this is nothing's going to work for me. That's, that's, that's like, I, I started with a nonprofit right out of high school. Mm-hmm. I had like a server job for two months and I quit that. And I was like, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't do this. I can't be this. And so I had a nonprofit job when I was in, you know, in college and I got about three quarters away with college. And I realized that even at the best case scenario for, I was going to school for anthropology is like the best case scenario. I'm either going to do something I hate or something I'm morally opposed to. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, I'm just going to keep doing nonprofit work. And mm-hmm. if I'm broke, I'm broke, but at least I can wake up and face myself in Feel the mirror. Yeah. yeah. Not dread going to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm sure someone said it before, but I'd read it beforehand, but I'd read it in this, this zine called evasion. Uh, the quote was life serves the risk taker. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, that's, kind of kind of rung true for me and for most of the people I know that have unconventional lives it's like mm-hmm. we take the risks we take and somehow shit kind of just comes together you yeah know? Like, yeah um you know a lot of us end up doing the things we want to do and mm-hmm. you know there's no 
you know, there's no shame in, in not being able to either. But, uh-huh. but, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes if you hit that limit where it's like, I can't keep going doing being this miserable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's worth it to take the leap sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people are really good about separating their work life from personal life and, uh, you know, going into a job and just doing the job and not really thinking about anything but that and then leaving. But I was unable to do that. I would like take in all my moralities and like viewpoints of the world into the job and with everybody I worked with. And like, I just had a really hard time getting along with people that I didn't think were good people. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I just can't be here sharing the space with you all day for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to that, but, uh, before I do, I, I did want to bring up, you know, obviously now you're an adult and it doesn't really matter, but when you were, when you were coming through high school and through college and you were, at least from what you're saying, it's kind of unsure of where your footing was, mm-hmm. you know, in, in general, like, did, were your parents pretty supportive or were they kind of like pushing a certain way where they like, don't, you, you know, like some people are very motivated by the way their parents disapprove of what they're doing or approve of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And some people have parents, um, like myself, I got very lucky. My dad was like, just be happy. Like mm-hmm. as long as you're not depressed, I'll mm-hmm. be happy that you're not depressed. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely had really supportive parents like that, that were kind of like, just do whatever makes you happy and we support whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, were they like artistic or, or no, like, no? Uh, not really, uh, not too creative. Our, our mom, she would do like our, arts and crafts kind of stuff when we were younger, but that was kind of like the extent of the creativity. And my dad's not, a, our dad's not a creative person either. Um, he's a judge and our mom is a school nurse. Okay. Um, yeah. he's an attorney now, but, um, she's still a school nurse at the, at the school that we went to. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so pretty conservative, uh, normal life, I guess. Midwest. Life, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. Not like ultra conservative. We, we would go to church a little bit when we were younger. And then I, at a certain point, like we just stopped going. And when we turned 18, we were like, you know, they they allowed us to not go anymore if we didn't right. want to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were always supportive and, um, but didn't really push us any direction at all. Would help, it helped out with paying for our school, uh, to a certain point, And then it was like, okay, well you have this amount of time. And then after that, then it, you it's on you. So, yeah. um, but yeah, cool. um, uh, we just kind of like found our own way though. They didn't, not much influence from them. Like you always hear about like a lot of people in noise. I feel like kind of have like weird parents or parents are into, uh, not always, but like, I just feel like it's maybe a little bit more common to art parents yeah, and like, or like the, the polar opposite, like super duper. I yeah. mean, I guess like I sort of fall in that way and like that, like until I came to live with my dad, I was raised by a really isolationist religious sect. So like, uh-huh. but yeah, like, you know, like, and it does tend, tend to be like more extreme, mm-hmm. a, a lot of less conventional people show mm-hmm. up to, uh, to, to be parents of noise artists. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so to circle back on on talking about, uh, you're saying like you know you couldn't you couldn't keep showing up to work with these people that you felt, I guess like morally opposed to you know or at mm-hmm. least like a, 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 to, the, to the things that they were doing, saying, perpetuating how they were living. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not sure of the specifics, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know at, 
now as like a business owner, especially with music, I imagine you've come into some of those conflicts, you know, like, like choosing, deciding what the, whether or not to carry something, Mm -hmm. especially with noise, it can get really murky. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of hard and it's, uh, I struggle that personally myself, just even as a consumer of it, of the product is like, well, that might sound cool, but like that subject matter, I don't, you know, is this an expression of, uh, this is an artistic expression. Is this someone, uh, expressing their viewpoints or, you know, is this a neutral product or is this product moving in a certain direction? Mm-hmm. And, and it can be kind of hairy sometimes where it's like, I don't, I have no real interest in giving my money to a misogynist, like, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes it's kind of hard to tell, you know, yeah, but right. I, I would imagine like, uh, you know, do you feel, you know, as someone that, that could potentially have that item on your shelves, like, do you feel, do you, do you, do you run up against that a lot or? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, um, I think it's, you just have to draw a balance with that sort of thing. Like if I was hardline, like not caring anything that I was morally opposed to or didn't like in the store, it'd be pretty, you know, pretty even more selective than what it is right now. Um, and I still like, I had the choice to, to what I'm going to support and carry, but I also have to take into account my customer's, uh, preferences and what they want as well. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, running a business, you're able, you like manifest your own destiny. So like I'm controlling everything and that whether the business succeeds or whether it sinks, it's all on me. Right. So I'm just constantly making choices to, yeah, what I want to carry and it is tough to figure out sometimes and not only just like subject matter, but like, uh, just how much there is, there's sure. just too much stuff to choose from. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff and a lot of not so good stuff, but there's, a, there's <laughs> just too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I just, I, I think about that that issue a lot, mm-hmm. a lot more nowadays than I did for a while. You mm, know, more I like think, subject matter or, um, to me, it's like, to me, the, a very important part of noise is that in, in experimental art and music and whether, or, or writing, whatever you, whatever is that there, the context is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't treat it like you treat pop music. You can't treat it even like, even like most, a lot of punk music, because at you know punk music is really just dressed down pop music in a mm-hmm. lot of ways it's 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 coming from the same source and kind of feeding into the same culture and we see it more and more so nowadays than ever where i mean there's a hard it's hard to draw the line where is a mainstream artist versus like a you know an underground artist right but with noise it's pretty clear yeah and context is so very important so if I think the context is, this is me personally, and, and if people don't agree with this, that's fine. And and this has changed somewhat in recent in recent time because of the way the world is, the way the way our you know our domestic climate is, the way I've my friends and family have experienced things in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, it's kind of I hesitate to say like politicized me because. Uh, you, 
that's that's way too so that's just simplifying it more than I'm comfortable with but you know I I'm not going to I'm not going to purchase something that's I want thoughtful material I guess is the mm -hmm. best way to say it you know mm -hmm. like if someone's doing something thoughtfully Mm -hmm. uh, even if it kind of might push up against some of the things I feel comfortable about, if as long as there's a thoughtfulness to it, then then I might be willing to 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 forgive it a little. I guess is mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Versus like I'll just if, if someone's just doing something for shock value, it's mm -hmm. like, dude, it's noise. Like there's literally nothing. You can, like yeah. in the first like four years of noise music, there were. There was porn and Nazis. Like it's yeah. it's kind that of that was it. It's already happening. You know, yeah. like yeah, like if yeah, it's like it's like wow, how original. But yeah, you, you know, like uh, yeah, if it's thoughtful, then I'm I'm willing to 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 explore it. You know? Yeah, but it 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 sometimes it it, it it still comes up to that thing where it's like, well, at what point does you know if 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 my desire in and noise and, and and my desire in doing this podcast specifically is to help foster a sense of community amongst everyone. At what point do those elements threaten my community? Mm -hmm. You know, like if mm -hmm. that dweeb wants to put out something with super scary, like crypto fascist, like art and, and lyrics, like, is he really a threat? Because like, a like, I mean like a, strong gust of wind's going to knock him over and be mm -hmm. like, how many people is he reaching? Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, if he reaches one person and then those two people reach two more people and then it's like, that's how, you know, like how things escalate. Like mm -hmm. it's, 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 you, you said it's like, a, it's a balance and it's, it's a difficult balance to have. And I think it's a pretty unique balance to find specifically within like noise culture. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it's just, um, by nature, I, noise and experimental is uh, controversial and has a lot of controversial subject matter, and it's just transgressive in general. So, I'm open to those ideas uh, existing in this world. I think it's important there for the, to be like light and dark, yeah, more or less. Yeah. Um, and you know, but I and I can make anybody can make the choice whether to support that or not. Um, so. Yeah, I guess I don't want to like. I do. I, it's just hard to explain, but I definitely draw the line at a certain point. You know, it's like if if there's if I don't want somebody coming in here that I feel like is a threat, then they're not going to come in here for sure. And that's has happened uh, before. I've had to do it. So, but I want this to be a place for like people in the community to come, and especially people outside of the noise scene that are interested in, in it, like those people to me are like, um, I don't want to say more important, but like it's exciting having new people around and yeah. introducing them to this. And like, that's how we keep it going for. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so I want those people to feel welcome. So I want to create a safe space for everybody outside of noise. What do you have? What, what are some of your other passions? Well, I'm trying to think here. Uh, <laughs> it's no, it's funny because when this question's flipped on me, I do the same thing. I'm like, wait, what are... I don't really know, no. <laughs> I folded uh, all of my other passions in the noise. It's, it's, it's really messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, I love... Uh, 
I love just like record collecting in general and um, exposing myself to new music and running the shop has like really expanded my taste even more. I'm into things that I didn't think I would really like too much that I really like a lot. So I like going out and finding records for the store like myself, but a lot of it is like this addiction with finding things to sell in the store. Sure. So that's uh, something I really enjoy doing. The hunt. Yeah, the hunting yeah. and digging for stuff is like a really serious addiction that I try to do everywhere. Like if I'm traveling, I'll try to do it wherever I am. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really special part of noise is that even though a lot of it can still exist digitally or like on the internet, mm. it's still like you still, even then you still still have to dig. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I'm drawn to that. Like I'm drawn to how far down the rabbit hole can I go? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, aside from that, like I don't really have much time. I'm pretty much here at the store. I'm here at the store six days a week. So I have one day off, um, that I do often do other store related things, but I avoid coming in here because it's kind of my rules. I had this one day a week. I'm not going to come in. Sure. Um, so, I mean, other than that, like, um, yeah, I enjoy like recording and, uh, doing releases on the label whenever that happens, which has definitely slowed down quite a bit since the store has opened. Sure. Um, spending time with my wife and cat and just eating good food. Yeah. Um, yeah. Every time I've come to Dayton and stayed with y'all, I've always ate really well. That's y'all, good. Y'all are excellent hosts. Thanks. So. <laughs> yeah. I hope that doesn't end. end uh, this doesn't end up with like a barrage of emails of people like I heard you. <laughs> I heard you let people stay at your house. But, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's a uh, it's a rumor that's gone around a lot. I hear a lot of people talk about Kathleen's cooking. So it's, cool. yes, yeah, it's remarkable. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, the, I would say like since since I've been following it, the label slowed down a bit. But mm-hmm. um, and this is something that I, I definitely want the the, the uh, touch on is that the uh, contemporary American harsh noise series mm-hmm. or is it contemporary American harsh noise or uh, just, just contemporary harsh yeah, noise that's right yeah. it was just contemporary mm-hmm. harsh noise because mm-hmm. there's lots of now that I'm thinking about yeah, it non-international artists yeah you know that's been a really exciting series as as a as a for as a consumer to like to pick up on and follow because I've discovered people I hadn't heard before mm-hmm. and you know I think that's an awesome thing um cool they each have a theme. Is that, an, is that a project that you have mapped out? Uh, let me think of how I want to a- ask this. So I, I imagine you've got a few, like, well, I mean, I, I know for a fact you have a few, like ahead that you're like, this one's going to have this theme. This mm-hmm. that. Is that something you see yourself doing at infinitum or is it like, after I get to this number, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to move forward with something uh, else. I don't, I haven't really given it much thought. Um, I'm one thing I'm trying not to do is plan too far ahead, uh, okay. which is kind of, presented some problems for me when I've done that before because because the label output slowed down so much that um, you know I asked somebody to do a release and then it ends up being like three years before it comes out so I'm trying to avoid that happening as much as possible so I'm not really sure in answer to your question how much longer that's going to go it's probably just I think I'll just probably keep doing it um, until I decide I'm just not interested in any newer noise projects anymore or something, which I can't imagine happening really. But sure. uh, yeah, it's hard to tell. And then um, it's really just like an opportunity for me to release works from people, from a lot of different people. You know, it's a good way, like putting four people on a comp as opposed to giving each person a, a cassette release. Right. Uh, it's just an easier way to like feature 
work that I want to feature without having to invest in like an entire cassette release for the artist. So. Totally. Yeah. I guess, you know, before we wrap it up, I, you know, I, I'd say from an outsider's perspective, you know, you've been able to through, through noise, like find a lot of value in life that might not have been as easy to find otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bigger takeaway than just, I like this sound and I collect this thing. Um, do you feel any kind of obligation towards, towards noise because of that? Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, I, it's hard to imagine just one day deciding I don't like it anymore. Uh, just because I'd seen, I, it's such a deep, I have such a deep passion an obsession for it that it's hard to imagine one day just deciding I don't want anything to do with it anymore and just moving on to something else. I realize that's a possibility, but, um, yeah, so it's just kind of hard to imagine, um, not being a part of it one day, I guess it's like if I just become totally deaf or something, that would sure. be the, yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah. one thing I can, the situation I can think about where <laughs> I would be done with noises when I just can't hear anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I do feel like a big part of the community, not just locally, but across the world too, with this, I feel deeper in it more than I ever have before, especially with the store. Yeah. And I really, I like doing all the thankless work like of booking shows and um you know a lot of that stuff that really there's not there's not much of a payoff in noise for anything you know financially socially sexually (laughs) there is no payoff you do it because you love it and um i mean you might be able to get some kind of notoriety within your tiny little scene but it's like oh great like you know A hundred people care about you instead of yeah. ten people or something. Yeah. Like I, I think Matt Becky said it best when he's like the the greatest stakes at noise are that like a half dozen people think you're really cool. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So I, I just yeah, I really enjoy every aspect of it. Um, even though I kind of complain about stuff a lot too. Like I feel like an old timer. Like I'm, you know, <laughs> like I feel jaded sometimes about. Yeah, how people do things in noise and then I kind of have to remind myself okay I was there before like we all started somewhere sure uh, it takes a while to figure out what you want to do maybe totally um, so yeah I think I really love supporting people who I like personally and whose work I like um, and I want to keep doing it for as long as I can really Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you said it was thankless, but from an outsider's perspective, I do want to <laughs> thank you for everything you do for noise. Cause oh, you've yeah. booked shows for me. You've, you've put me up, you've housed me, you've fed me. I'm sure a lot of people listening can say the same thing. You oh, know, yeah. you've put out releases for a lot of us and, and exposed, you know, a lot of us to music we might not have heard and stuff. That's, that's, yeah, it might be, it might feel thankless, but you know, you are, you are appreciated. Wow, thanks. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Yeah. I shouldn't say thankless cause it sounds like a whiny thing to say, but like, just no, sometimes... it, is, it is hard stuff that like people forget, people forget about, you know, yeah. like, you know, no one's like, no one's like really, you know, people will talk about a tape you put out and say like, Oh, that tape was sick. But how often are we going back and saying like, do you remember that flyer from that thing? That was sick. Or like, do you remember that show and how much effort it took to coordinate six drunk people and where they were going to go sleep. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
before we go, uh, contact information, like, you know, mm-hmm. if people want to reach out, follow you on social media, that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Um, uh, just skeleton dust is if you search on there, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, skeleton dust records.com is a website. Um, Hmm. We didn't really touch on Amplified Humans, but, mm-hmm. you know. We can talk about that a little bit if you want. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want more material or anything. If, if just really quick, like, if you mm-hmm. want to, like, how was that experience, like, uh, you know, getting together the massive, uh, ambitious Harsh Noise Festival in Dayton? Yeah, it was um, it was a lot of work. Basically, Stefan and I spent, like, an entire year uh, preparing for that, and... Uh, but it was totally worth it in so many different ways. I mean, it was just the heaviest lineup ever, I think. And just it thought it was it went off really well. It was successful, and it was really fucking loud, <laughs> obscenely loud. Was and that loud. was one of my favorite parts about it was how insane the PA was for the show. And I felt yeah. like really good about it. You know, it's just like you play so many shows where you're like oh, the PA sucks or like the sound guy sucks. And, but I, so I wanted it to be a perfect experience in that aspect and really all aspects too, like the timing of everything, the lineup. It how, flowed really well. Like what's that? It flowed really yeah, well. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just, I took all the things I hated about shows I played in the past or went to in the past or festivals that we didn't like and like changed it. So we thought it was like kind of a perfect festival. So um, but yeah, we were really happy with how it turned out. Um, not really sure if we're going to do another one. Uh, we kind of left that up in the air. We just, we knew we didn't want to do one every year, uh, just because I can't imagine, uh, the amount of work put into that on a yearly basis. And then also just giving time for it to breathe and for it to like sort of soak in for people. Absolutely. Um, and then I don't know, so maybe we'll do another one eventually. Awesome. Well, I, I think we got enough stuff i know everyone's getting ready to come in and practice okay. so, but you know thanks again for taking the time luke yeah and, thank yeah. you